Okay, well, why don't I open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the study. Lord, we do thank you so much for the day you've given us, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people and learn to study, to grow from your word and in your grace. And we ask that you would bless this day, that we would have a real sweet time of fellowship from every conversation to the music time to the preaching of your word. Give us uh, just a sweet time together that we would learn, grow, be more equipped to serve you in every way. Lord, we love you. We thank you and uh, ask that those traveling and those who are sick, that you would just bless them, that you'd give them a special encouragement today. Cause us to think of them and be in touch with them and, and to be a channel of encouragement for them. Lord, thank you so much for the ways you take care of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so today we are moving on to the next part of Christology, and we're only going to talk about that first word there, that funny-looking word, propitiation. Propitiation, not a word you use every day. <laughs> uh, so we'll break that down, and then uh, next week we will look at resurrection and ascension. This was our memory verse from last time, and uh, if you're like me and didn't memorize anything during Christmas week, you get another chance. So Hebrews 7:26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What a good verse. Propitiation, what a word. What do we know about this word before we jump in? What does it refer to? Multiple syllables. It is multiple syllables. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Propitiation. Payment. Payment, okay. And so... In the life of Christ, what does that refer to then? For Christ? Yeah, I mean, he, and he the, paid, the, there you go. He pays for our sins. Very good. Okay, this relates to the death of Christ, doesn't it? And when we're studying systematic theology, it can be a little confusing because you've got all these different categories. We are in Christology right now, which studies on the person of Christ, studies the person of Christ. We're going to get to soteriology which studies salvation. And those two categories overlap a lot because our salvation is found in Jesus Christ, isn't it? So we're going to talk about some themes as regards salvation today, but we're not going to get into full detail until we get to the soteriology section, okay? So right now we're going to be talking about um, how Christ's payment um, affects the person of Christ, how we understand the person of Christ, okay? So the first thing we need to note, uh, this is not where you thought we would start probably, but the word atonement is not a New Testament word. And because of the local teachings, the Mormon teachings for that word atonement, you can actually feel free to avoid the word atonement when you have conversations with Latter-day Saints. Um, you, you will not find the word atonement in the New Testament, which surprises a lot of people. The word you find is propitiation, not atonement. Um, and if you haven't talked to a Latter-day Saint about that word atonement, it's very interesting. Do you know what they believe about the atonement? So, let's see, I was going to draw pictures. I don't know how to draw a picture of a garden. What? <laughs> Their own blood. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, that's... Actually, a lot of Mormons don't today don't know about that. Um, that was that was Brigham Young, and they 
they buried Brigham Young's teachings with his body. So, um, so you, you know the story of Jesus going to the cross, right? Um, in Matthew 26, he's praying in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And then he, of course, dies on the cross, and then three days later, he's resurrected. For the Mormon, this whole thing is called the atonement. They don't look at, I mean, because you use that word, and it's not a bad word. I don't want to communicate that. You can use the word if you want. But for Christians, when we talk about atonement, we talk about this, don't we? Blood shed on the cross. That is what the word atonement means. But for the Latter-day Saint, atonement is this whole process because they actually believe his blood was shed here. Latter-day Saints believe that he paid for the sins of the world in the garden. And this comes from, I never can remember if it's Matthew or Luke. I think it's Luke. It comes from the, the gospel account where it says he had sweat at like drops of blood or as drops of blood. Now, that's doesn't, he's not saying that he literally sweat blood. Maybe he did, but that's not how it necessarily reads. It could read that he literally sweat drops of blood, or it could mean his sweat was pouring out like a wound, like blood flowing from a wound. But they say that's where sins were paid for, is here in the garden. And then this, instead of being the place where sins are paid for, this just becomes the place where he died. That's it. The cross is just where he died. And then the resurrection, of course, they, they make a big deal of the resurrection, which is okay, I guess. They just believe a different person walked out of the tomb than what we believe. And so they say he paid for sins in the garden, died at the cross, and then he walked away from the grave. And that whole thing is the atonement. And what you'll hear sometimes if you listen to Latter-day Saints teachings or interact with them is that you need to apply the atonement to your life. So they'll, they'll encourage them among themselves, like a general conference or whatever, the apostles will get up there and say, um, you know, you need to go back to the Savior and apply the atonement. And I don't fully understand what that means. I think it probably means something different for every Latter-day Saint. But generally speaking, I think what it means is go back and think about this process that Jesus went through and, and ask for your sins to be forgiven all over again, that sort of thing. And that's what they call the atonement. So when it comes to the propitiation of Christ, I'm noting right off the bat, atonement actually isn't in the New Testament. And one of the fun things I like to do with missionaries or whoever I'm interacting with is say, can you show me a verse in the New Testament that uses the word atonement? Because it's not in there. It doesn't exist. And, of course, they don't realize that the vast majority of the time. So thoughts or questions on that? In relationship to what they believe, on the cross of the atonement, there has to be bloodshed and there has to be death. Right. So they separated almost completely from the blood being shed. Yes. Which doesn't relate to. It. Yeah, and the and even though they say there's blood here, the image that they have in their mind is still just like teeny little bits, like little from a from a one of those things called like a syringe or whatever. Um, no, not a syringe. Um, the opposite. Uh, or not the opposite. <laughs> What's that thing called? Like a turkey baster, whatever, whatever the dropper, dropper thing is called. It's just like little drops of blood, boop, 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 boop. That's it. And that was enough to pay for the sins of the world. But if when you studied the Old Testament, what did they have to do? Slaughter the animal. The blood and death. Right. 
So um, that whole concept is missing from their teaching there. Other thoughts or questions? I, I tend to stay away from the blood sometimes. I um, had, knew a bunch of cowboy guys and they really got into the blood. Huh. All about the blood, the blood, the blood. You know. The only hymns they sang were nothing but the blood and have you been washed. But, well, it was all about Jesus shedding his blood. And I said, well, he had to, his death, the penalty mm -hmm. for sin, mm -hmm. his death, not bleeding. Mm -hmm. Oh, and they would go off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's life for life. That's that's it's, it, right? The, the bloodshed bloodshed means death. Yeah. And it's not it's a matter. Of, I even have one guy, oh, no, I believe he bled every drop of blood out of his body. Oh, my. Cross. I said, no, that's not the way you die on that. That's not crucifixion. Crucifixion yeah. dies of suffocation. Oh, no, I believe he didn't have a drop of blood left. Then I'm showing the verse where he was stabbed and it's well up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, I guess that made him feel better to think that every ounce of blood came out. That's kind of weird. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is about it, but they would just they all, they talked about the blood. You know, it's almost like going back to the Mormons. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was always taught that the reason Utah had the firing squad held on to that so many years because they believed that you had to shed blood. So people that were convicted had a choice of yeah. instead of hanging they could be shot in a firing squad. Yeah, they they believed in blood atonement to atone for their own sins and uh, if you really want to make friends out here. <laughs> uh, if you know a faithful Mormon who wears the temple garments, ask that person what the stitchings on the garment are for. There are particular stitchings, not just uh, you know, around the collar and, and sleeve. I mean, they have little marks right here and right here. And then uh, I believe there's one or two more, but I don't know exactly where they are, but I know at least these four. Um, and it was taught for if you committed certain sins, like murder and um, I don't know what other ones they put in that category, you had to atone for your own sins. And they would let you open there. Yeah. I mean... You would be killed to atone for your own sins in those places. And those stitchings are still on the temple garments. So if you really, really, really want to just make friends, you can ask them about that and say, hey, your, your special underwear, can you tell me about the stitchings? Uh, yeah, don't do that. Uh, at least not as a first conversation. Uh, the first covenant theme of atonement is explained in the new covenant as the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The first covenant theme of atonement is explained in the New Covenant as the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The following texts illustrate the foundation for propitiation. So get your Bible out. We'll go to the Old Testament first to Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus This is when Israel had made the golden calf. Moses up on the mountain comes down and sees what they have done, what Aaron has done with the people making this calf. And let's read Moses' response. Would one of you like to read 30 to 35 for us? You got it. Okay. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf and the one, no, the one that Aaron made. All right. So you see Moses' heart for what he was doing there in verse 30, going to the Lord to seek out atonement. And we see that forgiveness is connected with this, don't we? In um, uh, verse 32. The Lord, or Moses says to the Lord, if you will forgive their sin, and he's looking to actually put himself in a place where he would be uh, taking the fall for their sin. If, can you blot me out of your book so you can forgive them? He took the, that sin very seriously, didn't he? And so um, we see a shadow here of what Christ will eventually do, a shadow of a man in the place of sinners. Okay. Deuteronomy. So let's keep going. A couple books forward. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, starting at verse 5. The heading in my Bible says, Atonement for Unsolved Murders. <laughs> Atonement for Unsolved Murders. Boy. Glad we're not living in Israel dealing with this. Um, someone want to read 5 to 9 for us? Deuteronomy 21? Sure. Okay. Then the priest, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for their blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. All right. Can one of you give me a one-sentence summary of what's going on there and how it relates to this theme of atonement? Yeah, verse 8 is very key. Verse 8. Accept atonement 
For your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So sins have to be atoned for, don't they? Yes. And have to be atoned for with a sacrifice. Someone or something, like an animal, stepping in and being the sacrifice. Okay, and let's look at Isaiah. This is a very familiar passage. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. There it should be familiar to you. Here I am, send me. You know that, that phrase? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. There's also atonement in this passage. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'll, I'll read this passage. Starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! Now listen to what he says here. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having taken in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That's an interesting scene there, isn't it? He declares he's unclean. Here comes the angel with a, uh, a burning coal from the altar, and touches the lips and says, Your guilt is taken away. The result of atonement is guilt removed, innocence declared. That's the result of an atonement. A propitiation is a removal of sin and an appeasement of wrath. I hope you see just from these three passages, and of course there's a lot more that we could go to, but in just those three, you can see that sin exists as a problem, right? That is man's problem. He's got sin. What's God's response to sin? Death. Well, before you get to that, just his, what's his... Shedding of blood to them. Before that. I mean, is God happy with it? Oh, repentance. Yeah, well, yeah, he's, he's full of wrath. He, he demands for uh, justice to be done, right? Condemnation. Yeah, condemnation. And then that, that gets to, okay, well, how can man be made right? And we see in Exodus 32, Moses says, well, I'll be the one to, to get their punishment. I'll get their punishment so they can be innocent. In Deuteronomy, we see the heifer. The heifer has to be condemned so that way the people can be made innocent. And here in Isaiah, there's a coal taken from the altar to illustrate that removal of sin. And so the whole, the whole uh, issue here with atonement is sin's a problem. God has wrath towards sin. And there needs to be something to take away the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God, and take the sin off of that person's account. The sin cannot be on that person's account and God accept him. That sin has to be removed. Otherwise, you cannot be accepted before God. By the person that is committing it. Yeah, right. 
So in Isaiah, is the uh, cold that inflicts pain, is the pain part of the removal? No, I don't think so. And, and I don't know if we can really say there was pain. I mean, obviously the coal's burning. Yeah. It's a burning coal, and he took it from the altar. Um, but it just says, he touched my mouth in verse 7 and declared, essentially, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So it's the, the idea of it was taken from the altar still. Okay. Right? Um, there was a sacrifice on the altar. The coal was taken from there. Okay? Now the Passover aspect is really important. Um, let's go to Exodus 12 together. Exodus chapter 12. Back to the book of Exodus. Um, and let's look at a couple different sections within Exodus 12. It's a little bit of a longer section. So I'm going to read 1 to 14 and 29 and 30. 16 verses there. In Exodus 12. I'll get 1 through 14. Okay. So when we get 29 to 30? Okay. So uh, Jerry will read those, and I'll go ahead. I'll read 1 Corinthians 5 after that. So Jerry, you go ahead and read through that. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall the beginning of the months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man shall eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of the raw or boiled at all with water but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its intervals. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff on your hips. Uh, and, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go the land of Egypt at that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be sign for you on the houses where you live. And then, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. 
Okay, 29 and 30. 29 and 30. So this is, that's what the Lord said he was going to do, or, well, what he told Israel to do. And he said he was going to strike down the firstborn of the others. And now, let's read what happened. Okay. 29. It came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captain, who was in the dungeon, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Wow. Okay. So I imagine you're familiar with that story. Uh, the Lord said, I'm going to kill the firstborn unless you take a lamb and slaughter it. And what were the details from the about the lamb? It had to be what? Without blemish. Without blemish. A year old. So it was a sacrifice, wasn't it? A painful sacrifice. You couldn't take the old, gimpy, you know, ugly one. Uh, but it had to be one of the precious commodities. It had to be slaughtered. Now listen to this. I'll read to you. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. It says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are already as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Christ is our Passover lamb according to the New Testament, which is why we don't slaughter lambs and eat bitter herbs and all that stuff. Um, we don't uh, have this meal that we recognize like the Jews did, but we have what we call communion. And we remember what Christ did once for all as our Passover lamb. So what, was, what would happen to a family if they didn't have blood on their doorpost? Back in Exodus 12, what would happen to them? Their firstborn would be killed. Firstborn would be killed. Yes. Animals and people. Yes. And for those who had blood on their doorposts, they were spared. Passed over. Yes, passed over. Exactly. Um, so the sacrifice, again, appeased the wrath of God and took guilt off of their account, caused them to be innocent, and they didn't receive any punishment for their sin. Oh, I just answered that question. Uh, so with Christ, we have our guilt taken away. The wrath of God is appeased. We don't receive punishment for our sin because he received punishment for our sin. Okay. So Christ, and when you think of the details of Passover, Christ as our Passover, unblemished, right? Meaning without sin. That memory verse in Hebrews 7, separated from sinners, pure, unstained, totally innocent. He was a substitute. And this is a very important aspect of what Christ did for us, that there are some schools of theology that do not teach that he was a substitute for our sin. And if you miss that aspect of the cross, you miss the cross. He was a substitute in our place for our sin. He provided blood to be shed. He provided the uh, meal to be remembered, the communion meal. And it's all salvific. That's just a fancy word to say it pertains to salvation. What he did um, actually saves people. What was that? Something fell. Oh, it must be in that room. That was weird. It sounded like it was right behind me. Okay. Makes sense? 
Wouldn't that substitute and propitiation almost be the same? Yeah, well, propitiation is a fuller... So substitute is a part of the definition of propitiation. So like we would say, you know, God was the propitiation for our sin. Yeah, God the Son, yes. Yeah. Yep. Or Jesus, Jesus was a substitute yep. also yep. for our sin. Yeah, Yeah, and I, I'm not sure how much more detail I'll go into on these slides. I don't have my slides memorized as well as I should. But essentially when it comes to propitiation, it includes... It's a hard word to spell when you're trying to talk. Propitiation. Yeah, I think I did. Um, you've got the appeasement of wrath, which is a key aspect. The removal of guilt. And the substitutionary aspect. So, uh, appeasement of wrath, remover, removal of guilt, and substitutionary aspect. That's what propitiation is. From the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, anything affected by sin or uncleanness needs expiation, needs to be removed. It cannot stand before the holy God. The destructive reaction of God is provoked against that which needs expiation and is not expiated. So... If you've got sin on your account that needs to be removed, and it's not removed, then God's reaction, he, he's provoked. He's provoked to wrath. That is God's holy reaction towards sin. Expiation is affected supremely by sprinkling or marking with the blood of animals. And that's in reference back to the Old Testament, uh, the Old Covenant way. So as with the Old Testament atonement, New Testament propitiation is the personal expiation or removal of sin and purging of guilt, effectively appeasing the wrath of God. It is very clear in Scripture that the means of cleansing in both the Old and New Covenants is blood, or it should say, more accurately, death. Okay, um, But something had to die, something had to bleed out, something had to give its life. And this <clears throat> relates all the way back, and again, we'll get into this more in soteriology, but uh, a good memory verse from Leviticus, if I can pull it up on the fly, um, Leviticus 17.11 is what I believe it is, yeah, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so death, slaughtering, had to happen, had to take place on the altar. Life is in the blood and something had to die, something had to bleed out. Life for life to remove sin. Make sense? From MacArthur, by offering sacrifices, the Old Testament believer identifies himself outwardly with the covenant God and his covenant people. That outward demonstration ought to be the result of true faith. However, when that initiating faith is absent, the sacrifice is worthless, an empty gesture devoid of any spiritual value. That's an important point. In Israel, they would slaughter the animal in their place on the altar, but if they didn't have any faith, it didn't matter for them. 
But for those who did have faith in the one true God, who believed in Yahweh, trusted in Yahweh, then that is what satisfied temporarily the wrath of God. The bridge between the covenants is the propitiation of Christ and enacted the new covenant. Remember, uh, the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is the new covenant of my blood, right? His death, his sacrifice, the propitiation. Now, I've got some Greek words on your sheet there, and I want you to write these definitions down so you can understand how this word is used in the New Testament. The first Greek word is halasmus, halasmus, an appeasing sacrifice, satisfying God's demands. There's also hilasterion, which is a noun, too, and it's the place where sacrifice was offered. So halasmus refers to the actual sacrifice. Hilasterion refers to the place where the sacrifice was offered. There's a little bit of a nuanced difference there, and you'll see that as we look at these New Testament passages that contain these words. So one is the sacrifice, the other one is the place. And then finally, there's a verb form of it too, halaskamai, to have mercy on someone or to forgive someone. And you can see the, the start of the word is the same. They all come from the same root. And the theme is the same. Appeasing sacrifice, a place where you offer an appeasing sacrifice, and to have mercy on someone. Those themes are all related as it deals with propitiation. This, these are the words that um, are translated as propitiation. And you might actually find one or two of them translated as atonement in certain translations. But it's not a consistent thing in the New Testament because halasmus, halasterion, halaskamai all have reference to propitiation. Okay? So let's look at some of these passages. Let's go all the way to 1 John together toward the back of the Bible. 1 John there are two passages in 1 John where we see this word. 1 John 2.2 2 is the first one. A great memory verse. 1 John 2.2. 2. Let's look at that together. Someone want to read that one? 1 John 2.2? 2, 2? He is a perpetuation for our sins and not... For ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right. He is the, there it is, propitiation for our sins. And then the same book, just over a page maybe, chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you see that word, you got to think of these things. He sent his son to appease his wrath. He sent his son to remove our guilt. He sent his son as a substitute. All of those themes are tied up in that word propitiation. And we know, because I already gave you the word, that the result is we receive mercy because of that. We receive forgiveness because of that. Okay. Now this one's a little more interesting because this word, remember, refers to the place. The place where sacrifice was made. Let's turn back. To Romans, Romans 3, 25. So this, this word is used a little differently than the ones we just looked at. Romans 3. Twenty-five. Let's um, would someone read 23 to 25? Romans 3, 23 to 25. 
true. Okay. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. All right, so you see our themes all coming together there. The Passover, passing over sins, um, forgiveness, justification, Jesus Christ being put forth as the place where atonement was made. And I'll read from Hebrews, that's the other one, Hebrews 9. It says, uh, this was describing the tabernacle in Israel. It says, above the uh, Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the, it doesn't say propitiation, but it says mercy seat. That's the same word for propitiation. Um, the mercy seat that was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant had the cherubim that were there. The priest would go in and sprinkle the blood, and that was called the mercy seat or the propitiation. The propitiation, I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable there. Uh, the place where atonement was made. And so Christ is now our propitiation, but in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was the place where atonement was made. And then a couple other places. Um, I'll read Hebrews 2.17. I'll just tell you about Luke 18. This is the, uh, the parable that Jesus gave of the uh, publican and the... Uh, the Pharisee, the Pharisee and the tax collector, how the Pharisee went out to pray and he said, Lord, I thank you that you didn't make me like all those horrible sinners. I thank you that I'm such a great person and that I got everything together in my life and that I'm awesome. Basically, that's a paraphrase. And uh, the, the tax collector went out just humble and said he was beating himself and saying, Lord, be merciful, be halaskamai to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And how do we get mercy? How do we get forgiveness? Well, it's tied to these two things. Propitiation. There has to be a sacrifice, a substitute. And then in Hebrews 2.17, it says, Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, that's the word, a halaskamai, and faithful high priest in the service of, service of God. Um, and then it goes on to say to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To be a merciful high priest to make propitiation. So that's a good, good verse to show the theme of propitiation there. Okay? Thoughts or questions on that? Learn a little Greek today. All right. Do all Greek words start with H? No. And actually... Good question. There is no H in Greek. So the word uh, halasmus, for example, actually looks like this. Oops. Used the wrong sigma there. I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known anyway. <laughs> so it starts with, this is an iota, it's the I, but the Greek has breathing marks. So if it has a breathing mark that's open face like that, facing that direction, then that means it has that H sound. This is, I'm gonna get weird, nerdy on you. But uh, the word, let's see if I can remember how to spell it. Um, 
How would that be spelled? Oops. Probably an oopsalon. Something like that. This is the word hallelujah. It doesn't start with an H, but it starts with an A, which is an alpha, with a breathing mark. So when you see um, in some hymns, we sing alleluia instead of hallelujah, that's a bad translation of the Greek. They're not accounting for the breathing mark. It should always be hallelujah. So I, my wife knows that, and whenever we sing hymns and it's got alleluia, and I'm standing next to her, I'll always emphasize the age. Hallelujah. <laughs> because that's how the Greek word is spelled. It's not spelled without the, uh, without the age. Okay, all right. Nice. You didn't know what you're getting yourself into there, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to Romans together, where Jim read from earlier. Romans three. We're gonna. This is where we'll finish today, in the book of Romans, and uh, see some more about this propitiation stuff uh, from chapter three, and then a little bit from chapter five. Romans three twenty one to twenty six, which is basically. Uh, Jim didn't read all of that earlier. You read twenty three to twenty five. So let's look at twenty one to twenty six. Jim, you want to read that again? Starting at 21? Sure, to... Uh, to 26? To 26. Yeah. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right. So remember, we want to focus for the time being, not on the transaction between the holy God and the unclean sinner. We'll really focus on that whole transaction and soteriology. But we want to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and how he was able to provide this propitiation. So as you look at the text, look at verse 24. What is in Jesus according to verse 24? Redemption. Redemption, good. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. Jesus carried within his body redemption for us. So as he gave his life, as he sacrificed his body, redemption then was made available to us. Redemption is in Jesus. Look at verse 25. What is the Father doing in verse 25? So not God the Son, but God the Father. What is he doing in verse 25? He's putting forward as a propitiation Jesus. So the Father is putting forth the Son as a propitiation. So we want to understand how the, the different persons of the Trinity, how they are playing different roles here. The Father didn't die on the cross for our sins. The Son did. So does that mean the father was just really passive and not even paying attention? Well, no, he was actively involved. He was actively involved putting forth the son, right? There's a what and a how. The what is Jesus provided the propitiation. And how did he provide it? Well, the father put him forth to die, to show God's righteousness. So 
the Father put forth the Son, showing his righteousness. What was the purpose of this display of righteousness? According to verse 26, what was the purpose of the Father doing this? Look for where it says, so that. So that always answers our why questions. Why did the Father display his righteousness? So that, verse 26. He would be the just and the justifier. Good. So he would show himself to be just. Because sin has to be taken care of, doesn't it? What, could, could God just say, uh, you know what? You guys have sinned against me. You've rebelled. But I'm just going to forget about it. And that's it. Well, that's not just, is it? Just is, this has to be paid for. And he is showing that he is just by putting forth his one and only son as the propitiation for our sins. He is just in that way. And, again, we'll learn more about this in soteriology, he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's both just and the justifier. Jesus' mission on earth was to willingly offer his life as a ransom for many in accordance with the Father's plan. Just like the Old Covenant sacrifices, Christ's propitiation was substitutionary. The appeasement of wrath, the removal of guilt, and the substitutionary aspect to the atonement. Okay? Thoughts on Romans 3 there. That amazing passage. Lots of, lots of stuff in there. All making sense, I hope. God doesn't just look at our sins and say, yeah, you made a bunch of oopsies there, a bunch of oopsie daisies, no big deal, move on. He regards every sin as serious. And serious sins have to be paid for. All sins have to be paid for. And that's what God did by putting forth his son as a propitiation. John Frame says, Jesus bore the wrath and anger of God that was due to sin. In some mysterious way, he was even estranged from his father on the cross as the father regarded him bearing our sins. And one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.21. Talking about Jesus, it says, he became sin. That, if you just stop and ponder that phrase. That is wild, isn't it? He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin. And that's why the, this is all we can say. It's some mysterious thing. Jesus was estranged from his father on the cross as the father regarded him as bearing our sins. So, wild, wild stuff. It's kind of hard to explain when you're talking about the Trinity, huh? Yeah, it is. That's why we just have to say it's mysterious. Mysterious. The wrath Jesus endured in the propitiation is the Father's. Now, this is important, too. The Father's wrath. The full weight of God's anger for all sin was placed on the Son. And, you know, I'm not going to get into all the alternative theories of the atonement, but I'll just share a little bit of one. There's the ransom theory of the atonement which says that Jesus wasn't on the cross bearing the Father's wrath. The Father didn't put him there. But what actually happened is Jesus was providing a payment to Satan to win us back to God. 
that Satan has had the whole world in bondage, and there was a ransom. That's why it's called the ransom theory. So Satan, as the kidnapper, says, you can have them back if you die on the cross. And so Jesus died on the cross, and now we are able to go back to God. Well, that means he's bearing Satan's wrath on the cross. That's not what we see in Scripture. But we just read in Romans 3 that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation. God the Father put forth God the Son as a sacrifice, as a substitution, and he was bearing the Father's wrath. The result of an applied propitiation is then divine favor. Wrath is removed and favor takes its place. And that's an amazing thought. And that's why we sing on Sunday mornings, isn't it? Wrath is removed and favor takes its place. Good stuff. Okay. Um, oh, I also want to call to your mind Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It says in, in Philippians 2 that although he existed in what? The form of? Man. No, before that. Before, before he became man. Although he existed in the form of? God. God. He regarded equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Coming in the likeness of man, man okay, as a bondservant. Okay. The culmination of this hypostatic union, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the culmination of all of this is propitiation. It's virgin birth, impeccable nature, the perfect display of obedience. It all led to death on a cross. And that's where Philippians 2 goes. He was in appearance as a man. He emptied himself. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The whole purpose of Jesus' life led to this word, propitiation, to appease the wrath of God, remove our guilt as our substitution. Okay? And now Romans 5. If you're still there in Romans, just flip over to Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. And I'll read this. <laughs> Romans 5, 6 through 11. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Right. The propitiation of Christ gives the believer the following. From this passage, we can see the believer is justified. We receive justification. And what does that mean? It means to be declared innocent. Innocent. Salvation, to be saved. And I should point out, too, in, at the end of verse 9, what are we saved from? The end of verse 9? Death. death. Well, specifically, in verse 9, it says wrath of God. the wrath of God. So, do you guys know the name Rob Bell? you remember that name? You shouldn't remember his name. I'm sorry I'm, I'm reminding you of <laughs> Or, or introducing you. Uh, so Rob Bell was a guy who um, taught 
taught in Christian circles like ours and um, had some interesting videos and studies. And then he wrote a book called Love Wins. And the whole premise of the book was how hell isn't real. And he came to the conclusion that um, hell is just not what scripture teaches, that you either are saved or um, you just go into the ground and eventually it became, well, everybody goes to heaven. He's now a universalist. That's kind of where these things go. Um, but in his promo for the, for the book, he had a little promo video that came out. And he was walking along, and he was talking about a time that his church had a uh, some kind of art gallery. He had a really goofy, funny church. They had an art gallery one weekend. And then there's nothing wrong with art galleries. It's just kind of, it leads to weird things. And uh, there was a picture of Gandhi on one of the, the displays. And someone put a note on the picture of Gandhi and said, Reality check, Gandhi is in hell. And in his little promo video, Rob Bell is saying, really? Gandhi is in hell? And you know that for sure? And he's like, you know, questioning the whole thing. And then he goes on to explain that what gets taught in our gospel, and from his perspective, he was saying this is wrong, is that God saves you from God. And that's not the way it is. God's not angry, wrathful willing to sentence us to hell? That's not who God is. We don't need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from something else. I don't know what he went on to teach in his books. I didn't buy the book. But uh, we see very clearly here in verse 9, don't we, that we are saved from the wrath of God? And this isn't to say that God hates people. God loves people. And there's an aspect, this is Psalm 5.5, 5, where it says God hates sinners. There is an aspect of, he hates sinners, yet he loves the world. And he gave his only son. And, and he's perfectly balanced in these things. And we can't fully understand it because we're, we're so prone to either hate or love. God is perfectly balanced in these things. I mean, God wouldn't be just if he didn't hate sin. And, and God wouldn't be God if he didn't love people. And he, he does both perfectly. And so in the propitiation of Christ, we see his righteousness against sin as he's wrathful and also his love for sinners as he appeases that wrath. God the Son appeases the wrath of God the Father. And really more fully, um, it's not like, you know, they're so disjointed, like only the Father has wrath and the Son doesn't have wrath. Jesus has wrath too, doesn't he? And so God took care of his own wrath in the cross because Jesus is the lawgiver. It says in Psalm 2, kiss the son, pay homage to the son, lest you be destroyed by the son. So Jesus, who has existed eternally as God, has wrath too. And he came to earth leading to the propitiation and giving us reconciliation with God, with our creator. We have justification, salvation, and reconciliation because of what Jesus did on the cross. Oh, that's resurrection. We'll get into that next week. Okay? Thoughts or questions on all that? Well, I think that we're called to hate sin, but we're not called to hate the people, yeah. I think, too. Yep. That's, that's true. Yep. We, uh, and that's a hard balance, isn't it? It's hard to navigate that. Jesus Jesus said, love your enemies. And we're like, how can you do that? But right here we're told that 
while we were yet enemies of God, exactly, He loved us. It's a demonstration of His love. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, a finer point back to Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. Yeah, He became sin. He took on our sin. Yes, but can Christ really? He couldn't. <laughs> Since Christ can't sin, yeah, it's more like an imputation or something and, like that. Yes, and, and he never ceased to be God, right? Yeah. And God can't sin, yeah. But it, it's imputed on his account. Positionally, he was regarded as sin, just like positionally right now we're exalted above the heavens, right? We're exalted with Christ right now. And you look at look around, you think, no, we're not. <laughs> well. Um, Jesus imputed to his account was sin. So right now, imputed to our account, we're perfectly righteous, aren't we? No, we're not. Well, yes, we are. That's what Scripture says. You've been imputed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. And you think, well, Christ became sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, he was imputed with our guilt. And that is it's just an amazing thought. It's a mystery. <laughs> it is a mystery. God it can't is. die, but Christ died on the cross. Yes. Yep. Yeah. There's just some things we, we can't totally mm -hmm. nail down or understand. Or <laughs> we have to be content with the what when God doesn't tell us the how. Well, Christ died. That's the what. And we say, well, how? We couldn't understand that anyway. Uh, Matthias just asked me this week. Was God still everywhere when he became a little baby? <laughs> I think he said more specifically, was Jesus still everywhere when he became a, a baby? Matthias, I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> Go open your stocking. Okay, very good. Well, why don't I pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, again, thank you for this day and for this time together. We ask your blessing on those who can't be here and um, ask that these truths that we've heard today, we've read from your word, that they would affect our hearts and cause us to know you more deeply, uh, to love you and cherish you because of what you've done on our behalf. Pray your blessing on the service today too, that you would equip Mark to preach well, um, that we would have a sweet time as we gather together in that room. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.